At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. I've been covering business and the economy for more than two decades. And in that time, the topic of interest rates has never been hotter than it is right now. We've also got breaking economic news this hour. Moments ago, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. For and here the at home, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates for the 10th time in a row. But we do begin with that breaking news on our economy. The Federal Reserve announcing its decision not raising interest rates. The decision coming now after weeks of inflation. The federal funds rate is basically a control dial for the entire economy. Raising the federal funds rate means our mortgages and business loans all get more expensive. Lowering the federal funds rate makes all that borrowing easier. But as we've seen, that can also cause inflation. My guest today helps determine that all-important federal funds rate. Susan Collins is president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. No, the senator from Maine did not get a new job. There are two important Susan Collins in New England. Fed President Susan Collins tries to figure out how to keep the economy running not too hot and not too cold. It's a lot of pressure. But the job of a Fed president goes way beyond setting interest rates. The job takes President Collins to every corner of the New England economy. And in this episode, she takes me behind the scenes of that journey. Here's my conversation with Susan Collins. Susan Collins, President Collins, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, please call me Susan. All right. I will call you Susan. So I want to talk about one of my favorite topics and maybe one of yours, interest rates. That's one of the Fed's main duties. And I think you and your fellow Fed presidents meet about every six weeks or so. And what the public sees is we see Jerome Powell. He comes out, stands at a podium. He makes a speech about interest rates. But what actually happens behind the scenes? I mean, how do you and your presidents set interest rates? What happens? Take us into that room. What are those meetings like? Sure. And, you know, I I have to say that I have really valued the substantive nature of those meetings. So so let me say a few things. Because I, I, you know, I I understand there's a lot of curiosity. I was curious before my first meeting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so so yes, we do sit uh, around a large table. And the we is the governors who are based in Washington and the presidents of the 12 reserve banks, and also a number of uh, senior staff who are based at the board. Uh, um, Susan, when you say governors, what do you mean? They're not like state governors, they're Fed governors, right? Absolutely. So okay. the federated system that is the Federal Reserve is, is a bit complicated. So there are 12 reserve banks and each of those reserve banks has a president. And we actually, Boston is the first district of the 12 districts. San Francisco is the 12th district. And then there are a number of others in between. In addition to that, there are seven governors, one of whom is the chair, Jay Powell. 
And those positions are nominated by the president and have to be confirmed. And so the the process of appointing governors is different from the process of appointing directors. And so they are based in Washington, D.C. Each of the presidents is based in their bank, which is in a different region of the country. So you sit around a big conference room table, and then what happens? Yeah, so we're all sitting there. Of course, we've all done uh, quite a bit of work in advance, uh, working with our teams in a variety of different ways. For me, it is a combination of data analysis and models and also complementing that with extensive conversations to really broaden out and deepen understandings from people across the first district. And so we've done a lot of work in advance and we bring that with us to the meeting. Um, Kind of at a high level, what the meeting, what happens at the meeting is that there's a go round in which everybody, each of the presidents and governors makes a statement that shares with the rest of the group their own analysis assessment perspective on the state of the economy and the outlook. And so there's an opportunity for each of us to share those views. They do differ. And then at the end of that, the, the chair does put forward a proposal and there is a vote on that. And um, not everyone votes all of the time. All the governors do, and there's a, a and the New York president, and there's a rotation of the other presidents. But whether you're voting or not, your views are heard, and that's an important exchange. I mean, based on the comments other presidents make after the meetings, it seems like some of these meetings get very contentious, right? So I would say they're very professional, they're very substantive, and there can be uh, strong disagreements. And I think that's healthy. I think it's important to have a range of views expressed. You're new to these meetings, but do you think they feel different because everyone really cares about interest rates? You know, a few years ago when the Fed meets, the general public wasn't following the Fed that closely about where you are in interest rates. But now we're waiting with bated breath, right? <laughs> we're waiting, what will happen? What will the Fed do today? You know, will will they raise rates again? Um, and will that affect my mortgage? Will that make people lose their jobs and drive the unemployment rate uh, higher? Do you feel that pressure? The decisions are always really important. And am I well aware of the importance of the decisions we're making? Absolutely. Um, and take them really seriously. There is heightened attention to what the Fed is doing right now. I think that really speaks to the fact that inflation is high and is really challenging for people across our country in different sectors, in particular for folks with lower incomes who you know, are struggling to make ends meet with the, the high inflation and the higher prices. And that's the why that we're raising interest rates. You know, there were prior periods where if you think of after the Great Recession, when unemployment was extremely high. And again, there was a lot of attention during that time period to what could the Fed do to try to help get the economy uh, going again and to move things forward. So there's some times where there is broader attention. I think that's absolutely right. And now is certainly one of those times. So you've been at the Fed for a little more than a year now. And, you know, you're called the Boston Fed president, but your role is really more expansive. You oversee New England, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, Vermont, Rhode Island. And you've been spending a lot of time on the road, right, visiting businesses and small business owners, CEOs and other leaders. So what's the most surprising thing you've learned about the New England economy? 
But so let me first just reiterate something that you said. While we're called the Boston Fed, our district is the first district is almost all of New England and I and we collectively take very seriously the value of visiting from talking with, you know, small business express kitchens in Hartford, Connecticut, a childcare center in uh, New Hampshire and Manchester, large businesses in Maine, uh, bathworks, and, and just hearing the perspectives on the ground is hugely important and is also really one of the most, I would say, enjoyable parts of the job for me. I take seriously the opportunity to bring additional voices to the table. And was there somewhere you visited in New England, uh, I don't know if it's a business owner or an employee or worker that you met that really stuck out in your mind and really made you learn something about the economy or gave you insight into the economy that you hadn't had before? You know, what I would say has really stuck out from when I first arrived is some of the themes that are really common themes. And having come from academia, I certainly was aware that the two things I'm about to mention were really important for our economy, but not really to the degree and the range of ways that they make a difference. And the two that I'm talking about are challenges with affordable, accessible housing and challenges with affordable, accessible, quality child care. Both of those I learned from, again, some of the small business owners from touring L.L. Bean and talking with leaders at Bathworks in Maine, talking with the child care director in New Hampshire that I had mentioned just the range of ways that childcare and housing challenges are actually impediments for some people to be able to participate in our economy. I work and live in the Boston area, and of course, affordable housing is a huge issue. And in Boston and Massachusetts, I mean, childcare, we have one of the highest, most expensive childcare costs in the country. But you found that also to be the case in rural parts of New England as well? Absolutely. Why do you think that's the case? Well, there are multiple reasons. And these are all complex challenges. They're not challenges that arose overnight. So some of the challenges related to housing have to do with trends that, you know, have been years in the making in terms of pipelines for housing construction. There are different issues in different localities related to zoning and the ability to build different kinds of housing. But in rural areas in particular, one of the things that we saw in the pandemic that exacerbated some of the housing challenges was that people from other parts of the country realized just how beautiful some parts of New England are and being able to work remotely. That was my neighbor. (laughs) My neighbor moved to Vermont. (laughs) And, you know, and one of the things that did was it bid up the prices of housing in a number of rural areas which already did not have a large vacancies in excess supply. And so some of our rural areas are uh, have seen faster growth in housing prices and rents, um, whereas pre-pandemic, that was much less the case. You know, one of the other things that we've seen recently, and this is a national challenge, but of course more acute in some places than others, is because so many were able to lock in low interest rates on their long-term mortgages, They have an incentive not to either upsize or downsize. That's right. So the story of housing 
to be, you know, on the market is extremely low. And that also is contributing to some of the challenges. So it's all of it, all of those things. So what can the Fed do to make housing more affordable? There are some types of initiatives that really are outside the Fed's purview. I mentioned things like zoning and and other things before. That's really not uh, directly what the Federal Reserve does. So like many topics, there are things that relate to what the Fed directly is involved with. And there are things that relate to ways that we can serve as a resource. And one of the things I think the Fed does that's extremely valuable is to be a nonpartisan resource that gathers substantive information. One of the kinds of things that the Federal Reserve can do is help to deepen understandings about where the problems and the challenges are coming from, and also to identify examples of places, uh, initiatives that are helping, and to share those examples out to help groups that are trying to find solutions. More of my conversation with Susan Collins after this short break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision-making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to dial in on the Boston economy. I follow commercial real estate development very closely here. As you know, it can be a blood sport. (laughs) And with the rise of remote work, it's making it hard for downtowns everywhere, including Boston, uh, to recover from the pandemic. So do you think Boston might fall into an urban doom loop, you know, where office towers remain vacant and downtown empties out? I think there are a number of implications of some of the things that we learned about the ability to work more flexibly for for many people and many jobs that that are still evolving. I I think it's very hard to tell exactly where things will land. But one of the things I think is unlikely is that it'll be one size fits all. I think what we'll see is a wider range of, of kind of uses of some of those spaces. But I think it's just quite early to try to forecast out exactly what that's going to look like. When do you think you'll have more visibility on the impact of remote work on downtowns? If you go back to two years ago, I mean, you know, I think we have more of a sense that it's likely to be some type of a balance. You know, we're seeing different organizations experiment with different kinds of things, and they're learning from that. I think if you went back pre-pandemic, you would not have thought we'd be having these conversations. We've learned a lot about 
you know, how technology can be helpful. So it's hard to give a date, Shirley. I would yeah. say that, you know, we keep learning and it may well be that there's some urban locations that end up a bit different than other urban locations. But does the health of the commercial real estate market, I mean, is that something that you're watching as the Fed president? Yeah, absolutely. We're well aware of a variety of different indicators. We talk to financial institutions, for example, about exposure. You know, as you may know, we do stress testing on the largest banks. Yep. And um, the most recent example of that included a scenario that, you know, did involve stresses related to commercial real estate. And so it's something we're watching closely and will absolutely continue to do. As a Black woman, you are the first woman of color to lead any of the 12 regional Federal Reserve banks. I mean, do you consider yourself a pioneer? You know, I have to say when I learned that in 2022, I was going to be the first Black woman, I was really surprised. (laughs) I would have thought that there would have been others. And so You know, what I see is both recognizing a huge privilege. It's an opportunity. It's also a big responsibility. So I uh, appreciate the extent to which I'm seen as a pioneer. I have a lot of appreciation for that and, and really take that seriously. You know, I do take time, and this is important uh, to me, to uh, meet with a wide range of different groups and to make sure that people see their opportunities as being as expansive as possible. And to the extent that me being in this role is helpful for doing that, I embrace that. My first set of remarks in higher education was at a community college, and I chose that intentionally. I was surprised you didn't go to Harvard or MIT first. You certainly were invited, right? Absolutely. I must say I had many, many invitations, which is wonderful. And I look forward to making all of those visits. But I really wanted to make the point that we value the economic contributions and opportunities that come from all places. And community colleges play a hugely important role in an environment in which you have to be a continuous learner. So first of all, in terms of accessibility and affordability, really important in terms of collaboration with private sector institutions and pipelines into careers, and in terms of opportunities for people who are retooling and who are finding new ways to be able to thrive in our economy. The Community College of Rhode Island is the largest community college in New England. And that's the one you visited, right? That is. Its leader is uh, Megan Hughes, who is a member of our board and really appreciated her hosting me. It's also recently been named as a Hispanic serving institution, which means that at least 25 percent of its students are Latina, Latino. And for all of those reasons, it was important to me to have community college as my first. And it certainly won't be my only. I look forward to speaking at many different types of Uh, higher education institutions, including community colleges. So how do we create more Susan Collins? I mean, because it's not enough to be a first. There has to be a second and third. Absolutely. So, you know, people talk about opening doors. I think it's important that we hold doors open. So I was able to both enjoy tremendous support from my family and from many others. And I encourage people to not only look for mentors and allies, but to be a mentor and an ally to others, recognizing that we all have to work together to support each other. 
And I think sometimes people have a stereotype about what a leader looks like. And I think we need to really broaden that view out and get used to seeing others, women, people of color, people who are on the quieter side, perhaps, you know, lots of folks who may not be what the stereotype is, that they may have a huge amount to offer. And then if we want to thrive and be inclusive, we need to hold the door open and support one another and be brave in that space. So that's something I take very seriously. I mean, Susan, I think you yourself, I mean, you're a mentor. I mean, you want to build the pipeline of Black female economists. Can you tell me a little bit more about that work? Well, one of my favorite sayings is actually an African proverb, and that is, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you really want to go far, go together. And Mm -hmm. so I think finding others to work with and sometimes being willing to be behind the scenes and to support others actually enables you to get more done, not less. And so throughout my career, I have spent a lot of time working with people who were coming up in academia. So advising students, you know, running summer programs and being involved in a variety of different educational contexts. We just had an event here at the Boston Fed for interns hosted by the United Negro College Fund. We're hosting one of them here at the Boston Fed and other financial institutions around Boston are as well. And they invited me to speak to them, which I was delighted to do. But then I was really enjoyed being able to spend an hour talking individually with a number of the students who were there. And so I think it's taking time to talk with people, realizing relationships are important and helping people know that they matter (laughs) and that others care about their success. That mindset, I think, creates an environment that helps open doors and keep them open. So I've spent almost my entire career covering business news, and I'm pretty old. Uh, (laughs) And so I have decades of experience covering the economy, you know, Great Recession, the pandemic, I've seen it all. And you yourself, an economist by training, you've seen a lot as well. But tell me, is this economy weird to you too? It's certainly unusual. (laughs) I mean, you jack up interest rates and the economy is still growing and unemployment doesn't seem to budge as as fast as you want to, right? I mean, what is going on? (laughs) So I will say that the economy has been very resilient and, you know, things keep unfolding. And so it's important to watch the data carefully and, and to understand what's happening. There have been some surprises. You're absolutely correct. I mean, The pandemic came out of nowhere and unemployment spiked. The impact of that extremely sharp recession, we haven't really seen anything like that. It had both supply implications and demand implications. Typically, you know, the challenges we see come from a narrower set of paths. This impacted a wide range of things. And then unemployment came down really quickly and the economy went into a much more positive, more resilient place with uh, demand being very strong. And so, yeah, there have absolutely been surprises. I think that requires us to have a little bit of humility as we do our analysis and make our policy decisions. And, you know, it is uh, why I have called myself a realistic optimist. Realistic because there are lots of risks and uncertainties and it's really hard to predict everything, but optimistic because of the strength and resilience that we can get inflation back down to 2% and that we can do that without a 
major negative impact. And, you know, of course, we'll have to see how things evolve, but that has been my baseline. I mean, I feel like for me, it's made me more cautious about predicting the future. I mean, I feel like as an economist, we're always reading forecasts. I mean, do you feel a little more nervous (laughs) trying to predict what might happen in this economy? The Federal Reserve and many others have had forecasts along the way that were miscast, had not expected inflation to spike, had expected prices to come down a bit more quickly than they have. And I think recognizing that and learning from it is is really important. Those are some of the reasons why I think it's even more important to, to be as holistic as possible, both statistical data, models and analyses of different types, simulations, and also all of the different conversations around our district from people who have different vantage points and experiences in our economy. I think all of it helps to fill in the jigsaw puzzle, if you will, to try to clarify the picture of what's actually happening in our economy. I think I read one of your goals as a Fed president is to make us stop obsessing about inflation. So do you think you've succeeded? So I wouldn't say that's the goal. Uh, So our mandate from Congress is price stability and maximum employment. I think of price stability as a level of inflation that's low and stable enough that no one's thinking about it. So that's the sense in which, you know, you might think it's kind of disappeared. No one's thinking about it. We're focused on our economic lives, our family lives, you know, all of those other things. Well, at the moment, everyone's thinking about inflation and an environment in which small businesses and large businesses are rethinking projects and they're rethinking how they're investing. Households are changing how they're behaving. They're having to take on extra jobs to make ends meet. And everyone's focused on inflation. That's not price stability. And that's why we're so focused on the work to bring inflation back down. And in my view, that will go hand in hand with maximum employment, the other part of our mandate from Congress, that's sustainable. Because in a stable world in which inflation is low and stable, our 2% target accomplishes that, is an environment in which wage increases actually are real wages increases. In in other words, they increase real incomes, the purchasing power of incomes. And that's really what we want for our workers, not a scenario where wages are trying to catch up with inflation, which is what we have had recently. Susan Collins, thanks for joining me today. Congratulations on your first year at the Fed. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Ackerman and Alexis Sargent, with help from Scott Hellman and Abby Kamina. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please leave a review and follow us on Apple Podcasts. Find us online at globe.com slash opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Thanks for listening. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. 
I'm David Ritten, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now.